Chapter 4 A Fall of Mist Whoever sits down on the mound at Arberth, or so the story runs, may not leave it until he has either suffered blows or wounds, or has seen a wonder. Well, I set myself down there one spring day like Poish, out of pure mischief, and though I presently left, as I thought, untouched by either fate, yet in a manner of speaking I afterwards suffered both, as you shall shortly hear. The occasion was some days after my parting at Meridunum with a stranger called Emrys. From there, Yin and I had wandered on westward, intending to follow the coast more or less closely, thus continuing our sunwise circuit around Wales. As luck would have it, however, while entertaining at Arberth, we heard rumor of a great feast to be held in a few days' time at Abertavi, to the north of us. Following the coast as we had planned, we would come there far too late. But by cutting across the peninsula through the Priscilli Mountains, we'd reckoned to arrive within two days, three at the most. It seemed an opportunity not to be missed. So there I sat on Poise Mound, looking down at the little village of Arbert, basking like me in the warm spring sunshine as it straggled up the hill from its ford. The mound rises on the bluff above the village, overlooking the spot where the story says Poise Palace stood, though no sign of that now remains. Wood rots, stone crumbles, and all our works decay. Only poetry stands immortal as long as memory lasts. But the mound itself, Gorseth Arbeth as it is called, seemed solid and permanent enough that day. Crowned with green grasses and pale yellow primroses and little blue violets whose scent hung heavy on the cool morning air. It was also still wet with dew, as I had found in my cost, so that when I saw Yen humping his pack up the winding track toward me, I was pleased and more than ready to stand up and set off with him, brushing the clinging damp from my clothes as I went. I never gave a second thought to the geese imposed by the mound. Why should I? In truth, I thought such a fair spring morning wonder enough. The way we went that day was no stone-paved Roman road, such as had sped some of our earlier journeying, but a rough country track, barely better than a sheep path. Clearly, though, it knew its way across country, being one of the old ridgeways that men have followed time out of mind. One ford it dropped to, some three miles north of Arbroath, and thereafter kept to the high ground, running straight and clear, if sometimes rather muddy, toward the eastern end of Menath Preseli, which lay long and blue and peaceful ahead of us in the morning sun. The day was fair and warm, the warmest we had yet that spring. Larks rose singing from the grass ahead of us, mounting into a cloudless blue sky, and cuckoos answered them from the green valleys on either side. We soon saw that we would have no trouble reaching our first destination by nightfall, a small village on the eastern shoulder of Minas Priscelli, which would give us shelter and from which the land drops clear to Abertivi and the sea beyond. So after we had paused for our nooning, eating the food given us by our host the night before, 
We lay down in the lee of a clump of gorse bushes to rest for a bit. We had had some hard traveling lately, and I, for one, was glad of the pause. The sun was warm, and the air drowsy with a buzzing of bees, busy pillaging the golden blossoms of the gorse, and sweet with the honey scent of the flowers themselves. I stretched myself out lazily in the soft new grass and closed my eyes, seeing the sunlight blood red through my eyelids and feeling it warm on my face. I smiled and slept and woke to disaster. Disaster, that is, in the shape of fog, a cold, wet, clinging mist that cut off vision a pace or two away, so that the very gorse bushes that had sheltered us seemed dissolving at their edges into shapeless masses of darkness. It was impossible to tell how long we had slept, for the sun was invisible, and the light so gray and dim that direction was likewise uncertain. I started up abruptly, stretching out an arm to shake Yin awake, where he lay peacefully snoring beside me. Yin, I said, we are in trouble. He opened his eyes slowly and lay blinking up at the grayness for a moment, then sat up, reaching for his pack. Sah, he said, I think we are. Best we should be moving. We will have to go slow in this. And slow indeed we went. What had been a clear track before us, if not an overly well-marked one, had become, while we slept, a maze of sheep trods and branching side paths through marsh and heather and gorse. Again and again we stopped, sweating despite the cold, to consult on the way forward. More than once we lost our straight line and only knew it when the path we were following disappeared in a bog or dropped suddenly at our feet into a brushy comb, leaving us to retrace our steps as best we could and start again. At last, with the light fading, we lost our way, as it seemed, finally and forever, when what we had been sure was the main track led us to a sheep-trampled ford instead of a village. Yen stood for a moment staring at the latest ruin of our hopes, then scratched his head. What now? I do not know, I said wearily, feeling muddy water seeping yet again into my boots. As I spoke, my breath steamed into more mist before my face. Somewhere in the distance I could hear sheep bleeding. Find the shepherd? He nodded, easing his bulky pack on his shoulders, and splashed wordlessly into the stream. We stumbled about in the heather until it was almost too dark to see which bog we were falling into next. We could hear the sheep, and once or twice we saw them, pale patches in the gloom, which trotted briskly away at our lumbering approach. The loom of some larger mass ahead of us gave us hope for a moment, especially when it resolved itself into the sort of dry stone hut that the shepherds often build for shelter on the moors. But we knew before we reached it that it was cold and empty, and so by that time were we. I dropped my pack by the doorpost of the hut. Let us stop here, at least it is shelter and a dry place to lie down. I am done. Ian pursed his lips and spat deliberately, then nodded. Wordlessly he doffed his own pack and bent under the low lintel. 
The hut was dirty and cramped, and dark enough inside to make the fog without look bright, but it was shelter of a sort, and the dried piles of last year's bracken that my groping hands discovered by the wall would make for better sleeping than the bare ground. With flint and steel, Yen kindled a stub of candle, and by its light dug through his pack, emerging at last with a couple of strips of dried meat and a crumbling oak cake which had lived there the gods knew how long. Pinching out the candle to save it for later, we split the food between us and settled back on the bracken to eat. The meat smelled odd and tasted worse, but I was young and hungry and choked it down regardless, then wrapped my cloak around me and curled up to sleep. It was some time in the night when I became aware that my supper was not agreeing with me. I fought the urge for as long as I could, but at last staggered up and out into the fog, leaving my friend snoring peacefully behind me. Stumbling clumsily over the rough ground in the dark, I went some way apart for privacy, and then gave way to nature. I will draw a veil over the next hour or so. No doubt you can supply the details from your own experience. I will only say that it was a long time before I could face smoked meat again, and longer still before I trusted any food out of Yin's pack. By the time I could once again take an interest in my surroundings, the fog above me was growing perceptibly lighter, not, as I first thought, with dawn, but with the rising of the moon, a waning crescent faintly visible through the murk, whose appearance meant that day could not be far behind. I lay for a while watching her as she climbed above the shoulder of the hill, then, feeling the cold begin to bite deep, hauled myself wearily to my feet and turned toward the hut. It was not there. I think now that in my quest for privacy, I had merely gone a little further afield than I intended, but at the time it seemed a supernatural vanishing. Still, shivering and light-headed as I was, I pushed off in the direction where I thought the hut should be. A few minutes stumbled through the fog proved me wrong, but as I paused again wondering what to do next, I saw a tall figure standing silent in the moon-silvered mist ahead of me. A few more steps and I knew it for a standing stone, a massive dark gray block like many another we had seen the afternoon before. In my confused state, it was a familiar friend, and I staggered forward to greet it, flinging an arm around it for support, and gradually sliding down its moonward side, to end sitting on the turf with my back against the stone. Wrapping my arms around myself for warmth, I sighed and closed my eyes, hoping that day would come soon. Somewhere a hunting horn was blowing, and dogs were chasing a stag. I could hear them coming closer through the darkness, hear the horn and the hoofbeats and the baying of the hounds, shining white hounds with red ears, chasing a pure white deer. I knew what the huntsman would look like following such a pack, knew his dapple-gray horse and his gray hunting garb, gray as the mist around him, and I knew, too, his name. His name was Aran. Not many miles from where I sat 
was Glen Peak, the frowning glen where Poise, Prince of David, of Gorseth Arber fame, had once while hunting seen another pack of dogs, chasing and killing a stag on his lands. He had driven off that pack, unearthly though they were, their bodies all shining white and their ears all shining red, and fed his own dogs on their kill, only to be interrupted by the hunter himself, who proved to be none other than Araun, king of Anun, the Celtic otherworld. Araun threatened to punish Poith for his discourtesy by satirizing him to the value of a hundred stags, unless Poith first won his friendship by performing a task for him. And that was a fearful threat, for satire is the weapon of the bards, and in the hands of a master it can kill. And if a human bard's words can have such an effect, how much more power might a verse composed by Arun have over a mortal man? Such then was the hunter in the night, and such were my thoughts as I crouched at the base of the standing stone and strained my eyes into the swirling mist around me. Distantly I saw the hunt come and pass, the wraith-like deer and the white hounds gleaming in the darkness. Dimly I saw the rider, gray-cloaked and gray-mounted, pass by, with his followers streaming behind him, and the moon striking sparks of silver from their fittings and their horns. They came and passed like thunder, and dwindled into silence, and I was alone with the moon and the mist and the coming dawn. Or not quite alone. Out of the mist before me came the sound of footsteps moving steadily over the turf toward me. Through the brightening mist a gray-cloaked figure was approaching, with the white shape of a hound trotting at his side. I stood up slowly, my back to the stone, to meet what was coming to me my throat dry with more than the rigors of the night. My movement caught the dog's attention, and he started in my direction. I could almost see the huntsman's face. Then I was sitting at the foot of the standing stone, blinking up through the first light of morning at a puzzled shepherd who stood staring down at me while his dog licked my nose. Man, he said, do you not know you can catch your death? "'Sitting out like this on night in the fog and all?' "'I grinned and forced myself stiffly to my feet, "'feeling as if I had been beaten. "'Oaths are wounds or a wonder, was it? "'I had had full measure. "'Never mind,' I said. "'It was a good dawn, and I seemed to have survived it. "'Do you help me find my friend, "'who I think is still sleeping soundly in your hut, "'and set us on our road, and I will bless you thrice over.' With the mist thinning fast before the rising sun, it took little enough time for him to do so, and before long Ian and I were dropping down over the shoulder of a hill to the village where we should have spent the night. We got a warm welcome there, and warmer sympathy from the shepherd's wife, who took us in and fed us. And of all the wonders I had seen that morning, the hot oat cake she baked for us on the hearthstone were the most wonderful of all. Afterwards, as we walked, I looked back often and often over my left shoulder at the slopes of Meneth Preseli, as smooth and blue and serene as they had been the day before. They do say that stones from that peak 
were dragged by the men of old to Salisbury Plain to build the giant's dance. Dragged, or it might be, floated there by magic. But that, oh my children, is a story for another day. Chapter 3. The Power of Names What power lies in a name? Gwernon Kiarad am I, Gwernon Storyteller. So have I said before. And yet I practice all the bardic arts, so far as I am able, poetry and song and harping, as well as storytelling and the recitation of lore. So why do I call myself Gwernon Kiarwid, Gwernon Storyteller, and not Gwernon Varth, Gwernon the Bard? Modesty, perhaps, or a stronger regard for the truth in some display, but mostly for another reason, of which I intend to tell you now. The feasting at Dennis Poets was behind us, and we were on the road again. Fine indeed had it been while it lasted, for though the Lord Davis Hall was smaller than some I have seen since, his table was bountiful, roast meat in plenty, both cows and pigs' flesh, made dishes in the old Roman style, flat wheat and loaves from the baked stones, barrels of red Gallic wine and great pitchers of the clear honey-sweet mead with its faintly bitter aftertaste, which seems to light all the world like a golden lantern while it lasts. Half a dozen bards had performed, all eager to fill the empty chair of the household bard at this wealthy court, and all the other performers got a turn as well, and a gift of silver afterwards for their pains, myself included. Mine was a bracelet in the Saxon style, and not the least by any means of the presents given. I got, too, a word of praise and an encouragement from Kian Goch, which I valued above the silver. He it was who won the bard's contention and stayed on as the new household bard to the Lord Doveth. I was glad for his good luck, but sorry to lose the chance of his company on the road, for he seemed more friendly and less full of self-pride than some of the bards there more friendly at least to me. All in all, then, I was thinking very well of myself by the time Yen and I set out on our travels again. Westward the two of us were going, toward David, following the Romans' old paved road which runs straight as an arrow from Caradith to Maradunum, or Caramurthen, as it is sometimes called nowadays. As one often does, we fell in with a number of other folk, who were also following that road on their way home from the festival. What with a bright spring morning and my recent moments of triumph, I was in high spirits and kept the company entertained as we went with jokes and riddles and tales. I mind there was one little fair-haired girl in particular who seemed very taken with me, or at least with my stories. She walked close beside me to hear them, and I was not sorry for her bright eyes made me feel taller and stronger and wiser, maybe, than I was, or was ever like to be. Ah, well, we were young, and it did no one any harm. As the day went on, most of the folk dropped away from us, turning off to north or south toward their homes, until at last, when afternoon was fading into evening, there was none left but myself and Yin, 
and one gray old man. I had not talked much with him earlier, being taken up with my own brilliance, but now I turned my attention to him for lack of any other audience. He and being a silent type on the road, and not likely to be impressed with me anyway. And where are you bound, sir? I asked him as we drew near to the village of Abontvine, where the Roman stone bridge spans the little river Thaw, and where we were hoping to get lodging for the night. To Baradunum, near which I live. His speech was that of an educated man, despite his shabby tunic and faded brown cloak, and I looked at him with more interest. We also are bound that way, I said, and smiled. Perhaps we can travel together and keep each other company on the road. Perhaps. I thought he looked a little amused. What is your name, lad? Gwernon Varth am I, said I, feeling very splendid. And I come from fair Pinguernan Poise, where Kinnan Garwin has his court on the banks of Severn River. Oh, he said, it is a bard you are, is it? You look full young for such distinction. Why, why, perhaps I am. I was rather taken aback by this challenge, which I had not expected. But I will grow older. And wiser? The glint of amusement in his dark eyes was very marked now. Discourse to me then, O bard of your wisdom. Why is stone hard, and why is the thorn sharp? What is as hard as a stone? and as salty as salt. Why, I do not know, I had to admit, for the riddles were unfamiliar to me. That is, yes. Then when I made no further reply, what is as sweet as honey, what rides on the gale? Why is the nose ridged, why is a wheel round? Deeply troubled, I said, I do not know. His smile had reached his mouth and glinted through his gray beard, and yet I think it was of triumph without malice. Until you know the names of the verse forms, he said very softly, the name of Remyad, the name of Ramiad, until you can name the nine elements by the aid of your seven senses, then I think, Gwernon, that you should keep silent, for whatever else you may be, you are not a bard. No, master, you are right, I sighed. I am plain Gwernon's storyteller and nothing more. That is honestly said, at any rate. Then, when I continued downcast and silent, he added, Do not be so discouraged, youngster. By admitting what you do not know, you have made a first step toward wisdom. I smiled despite myself. A first step on a very long road. Master, if we should travel together, might you be so generous as to share a little, a very little, of your knowledge with me? So, a second step already. Yes, Gwernon, I will. I thanked him earnestly, and he nodded. But I think that must wait until tomorrow, for look, here we are at the bridge, and the sun is setting. And it was so. Several days we traveled together, and I learned much from the stranger, who called himself Imris. We parted at last by the bridge outside Maradunum, we going on into the town to seek our fortune, and he off up the valley toward his homestead. 
I never saw him again, but I heard tales long afterwards, and guessed who he was. I will not say his name now, for naming calls, and I would not trouble his rest. It was well earned, and in times and places which have now passed away. But I remembered his lessons, and began, as I walked, to make and polish, with such clumsy labor and pain, but such pride, my first songs. This is a craft which cannot be learned too young, or rather cannot be learned at all. No true bard that I have known ever feels he has got to the end of it, however far he has gone. No, not the greatest of us all. And his name I will say, for he was called Taliesin, which means shining brow. And his rest I cannot disturb, for he is with me still. But that, O oh my children, is a story for another day. <laughs>